Thank you for listening to NSL Double Talk. Never stop learning. NSL Double Talk is brought to you by the company Never Stop Learning. NSL connects people and companies with experts across categories ranging from science and technology to art to global affairs and more. We look forward to learning with you. All right, should we start? Yeah, it's all in. All right. Overcoming Obstacles on the Path to Success featuring guests JJ Ramberg and Liz Gately. JJ is a television host, podcast host, entrepreneur, and author. She hosted Your Business for 12 seasons, making it the longest-running program on MSNBC. Dedicated to helping business owners and those in management grow their companies, Your Business has profiled hundreds of growing enterprises. Her podcast, Been There, Built That, goes deeper into the stories of successful founders. Liz has built her career featuring hit content, discovering talent, and building businesses. She is best known for creating Laguna Beach and co-creating and executive producing its spin-offs, The Hills and The City. During her tenure at MTV, she oversaw almost a decade of television hits that are still either on the air or are being resuscitated, including Jersey Shore, 16 and Pregnant, and Teen Mom. Gately was also head of programming at Lifetime Television, overseeing original movies, scripted and unscripted series development. JJ and Liz, we are thrilled to welcome you to NSL Devil Talk. Liz, I'm so happy to talk to you. I'm so happy to talk to you, JJ. <laughs> um, particularly because I know the theme of our talk is overcoming obstacles, but I'm like six months behind you in my life right now because you made such a big change six months ago, and I'm on the verge of making such a big change in my life right now. So this this conversation might actually turn into sort of JJ's career counseling therapy <laughs> session. <laughs> I, believe me, I've been through a lot of soul searching and figuring out what drives me, and I'm here to help. So, <laughs> um, okay, well then, can we start? I'll ask you questions yeah. and, and we'll yeah, yeah, put the tables on you for a sec. You had this amazing career that you just absolutely put the brakes on what you were doing and and change it. And you wrote this note to your whole staff at Lifetime saying, I'm leaving to spend more time with my kids. Yes. Which usually when you hear that, you think there's something more behind it. But when I read the letter that you sent to your staff, I thought, oh, she indeed really is leaving to spend more time with her kids. Yeah. Well, I'm, you know, now eight, nine months in. So mm-hmm. I'm in a really, really good place right now. I was a mess. My worth was so caught up in my career that I didn't value those little things that you do for your family. Now I get to go pick up my kids and go to the beach with them and I get to take them to dinner and all these things that I hadn't done and I never was truly present with my kids. So it's it's going to be a process for you and I think, you know, the biggest obstacles for women, let's call it middle age, who have ticked a lot of boxes on their bucket list is now how do you define yourself and and what are the new obstacles? How do you live a life of purpose but still focus on your career? You know, it's so interesting. I've so I've spent the last 12 years interviewing business owners, people growing businesses, and I found the one thing that separates the really successful people from not are people who are able to frame things in a way that puts it in perspective so they're grateful for mm-hmm. what they have and just this sort of one foot in front of the other, right? I, I can worry about this and try and fix it or I can just try and fix it. Right. And, so, and worrying about it doesn't actually change anything. Right. And so just however, whatever it is for you, make your list or, or have a board of advisors, personal advisors, but whatever it is, just one foot in front of the other, eyes forward, and yeah. something will happen. Well, I was really shotgunny about what I wanted to do. I didn't know. I didn't know how to articulate it. And I actually ended up 
working with a friend of mine who just sat me down and she said, you know, what drives you? Put a list together. Is it FOMO? Is it is it being at the center of culture? Because every you know, most everything I've done, especially at MTV, was cover of Us Weekly and so much notoriety. And I felt that I was touching that youth audience. So that was a big driver for me. I like being in it around young people and figuring those things out. Is and it still? It still it still is. I have always run meetings. In fact, when I started at Lifetime, I called my first scripted meeting and I said, well, I want all the assistants in the room. And they said, well, why? And I said, because good ideas come from everywhere. And, I, and a lot of good ideas come from young people who are out there cultural editors, they're out every night, they're touching what's going on, um, where half my team, you know, had young kids and we're going to... And you're going home. <laughs> yeah, and, and and I was going home. I, I have always had jobs that required me to go out a lot, so I always felt like I was in touch with people and music and culture, and it was sort of this sixth sense that I got when I was little, when I moved from Minnesota to L.A., very 90210. Uh-huh. I didn't have any friends, so I just watched TV for like four years. Um, I watched Unreal, which was under you, right, at Lifetime? Yeah. Which I thought was so good. It was. It was interesting that that particular project came out when it did because it was three years ago, well before the Me Too movement. And I think television is the industry that, and, and film, where the actors that came forward against Weinstein and combined with Gretchen Carlson and all the people that came forward in news is the area that really broke through. And Unreal was <laughs> very realistic. Let's just put it that way, given my experience. Uh, with reality television? With reality television, more so just the obstacles. I think, you know, as it comes to women, I found coming up the ranks as a junior person... I never felt the glass ceiling. But once I got to the top at a very senior level, I I found it very interesting in terms of the obstacles and challenges that I faced where I was presenting things on the 50th floor to a group of mostly men and I was often the only woman in the room. And it was interesting, the unconscious gender bias that went on um, in terms of someone looking past me, asking the follow-up questions to the person next to me when it was my slate, my product that I was presenting. And it's just a very interesting in terms of the higher-ups, the executive ranks. Did that ever end as you kept rising? No. No, I would say, I would say it hasn't. I think that most of unconscious gender bias is taught at home when boys are growing up and whether the father listens to the mother. And so you can't expect a man who, and I worked with a lot of very, very evolved, very kind, very supportive towards women, but it's the unconscious that really gets to women. Did you ever experience that? You know, um, yes, I'm sure I have. I've worked with a lot of women Mm -hmm. in my career. So I did, but I'll tell you what resonated with me a lot was lean in. Mm-hmm. Because I read a lot of those things that Cheryl Sandberg wrote about of sit at the table and do this. And I went to an all-girls school growing up. And for us, Women's History Month was like Christmas. It was the biggest thing that right. happened, right? And I grew up with a very successful entrepreneurial mom. And so I had 
everything teaching me that women are equal to men and we deserve a seat at the table and women are successful, et cetera. And yet still, when I read Lean In and I think back on my career, I can think of all of the times I sort of took a back seat mm-hmm. when I shouldn't have. Right. And so that's the part that resonated with me. I almost had my own unconscious bias, right? And, and so right. I'm sure there was some coming at me as well. But when I think about my career, I think more about what I was doing and how I could have easily just acted a little bit differently and changed right. that. Yeah, I think a lot of it is is self-perpetuated for sure. But I was reading about your background and your, your very entrepreneurial family. Do you feel that that defined you, your grandparents, everyone in your family were entrepreneurs? They were. So my grandfather on one side was, um, he moved from Mexico, didn't speak a word of English with his young family, and he was literally a peddler going door to door selling stuff and then eventually opened a furniture store. And then my grandfather on the other side was this, like, he was such a character, like out of a magazine or TV show or a book. He wore only cowboy boots. He had literally 150 pairs of cowboy boots. And he had tons of money some days and zero money. Like he made a ton of money, then lost a ton of money. And he he was the first guy to bring frozen pizza to Los Angeles. He had a fish store, not like fish that you eat, but goldfish that you sell. He, he sold used cars. The, the month before he died, he called me to see if I wanted in on some deal. <laughs> he was and he was going to get limestone out of some lake in Palm Springs or something like that. He was just amazing. And he taught that to my mom, who had the best story. And when I think about overcoming obstacles, different kinds of obstacles, not like food on the plate kind of big right. things like that, but but just being ambitious and, and not letting anything stop you. My mom was a stay-at-home mom, and she did the opposite of you. So my mom was a stay-at-home mom until her mid-40s. And then she and my brother started a company together. And pre-internet, right? So yeah. pre-kids starting companies out of their dorm rooms and moms with no experience starting companies <laughs> successfully, right? This was in 1985, I guess, or wow. 86. And she and Ken started a company. And everyone, of course, thought it would fail. And then they sold it to Monster.com 13 years later. Yeah, so, I read that. That's, that's amazing. It, it was the best role model I could have had. So when I think of things that come in my way, uh, anything that I'm facing, I just think, like, she did it. If you just believe that you can do it, maybe it just happens, right? Yeah. And if you just... And I think of all my friends, too, especially in your industry. I, I think of... Um, these writer friends of mine who just were so, had such a hard time when they were young, right out of college, and no one would give them a chance, and they just kept at it and kept at it. And now, you know, one's won a Peabody now, right? And one's yeah. the showrunner on something else. And I just, I feel like, and maybe this is a very rosy or privileged way of thinking of things, but if you just keep trying, don't let your ego get in the way, and listen to everyone who will give you advice... And, and make nice. connections anywhere you can. Somehow it will all work out. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> I mean, we were talking, I'm reading Grit by Angela Duckworth right now, and the the amazing thing, she did the study on the West Point freshmen that go through the, the BEAST program, and they, talent and strength and experience have nothing to do with who succeeds. Apparently there's a big dropout of the class that's worked two years just to get into this program, and then they do a seven-week program in the summer 
of rigorous training, rigorous classroom, and I think 40% drop out. And it's all just that can-do, never-give-up attitude. And I'm just curious. I've always wondered what created that in me. Um, do you ever wonder, Was it is it inside, or do you feel like it's nature versus nurture? Is that something you were born with? It's funny. I don't know. I guess it, right? If you could answer for yourself, too. I just, I think if you see it around you, just, you know, someone out there loves you. And if you fail, someone is still going to love you and will be there with you to pick up the pieces. Right. Because it, it is risk taking. I think obstacles that come from a philosophical standpoint, it's being okay with the waiting time. Just in terms of my life advice for you, you have to be okay with the waiting and that uncomfortable, I don't know what's next. And I think that to have faith that it's going to work out, you have to have that support system around you of family, people that believe in you. Not every day has been a day where I was comfortable waiting, but I also know that every, you know, we only get one chance to do something that you really love, or we only have one life to do things that you really love. There's a famous Steve Jobs quote about this. And you better be damn well sure you're going to love what you do every day. And I have to say, I, for most of my life, I was a lawyer before I decided to move to New York and work in television, and I really didn't enjoy it. And when I was pushing a mail card at William Morris for $300 a week with no money, I, uh, one of the book agents stopped me and said, you were the happiest mail card pusher I've ever seen. And I said, because I know I'm on the path to what I want to do. And I feel like as long as you know you're on the right path, um, But by the way, that's a big deal out. when you're 20. So you already gone to law school, right? Yeah, I was so 25. So you're 25 and you give up being a lawyer to go work in the (laughs) mailroom at William Morris. Yeah, my parents were super excited about that. (laughs) I would show up to holiday parties and they would be like, oh, how's practicing? How's the law firm? And I would, you know, they hadn't (laughs) told their friends that I had thrown their tens of thousands of dollars of tuition away and was working in the mailroom. But then when I created Laguna Beach in the Hills, they were like, our daughter. (laughs) (laughs) It's very funny. But um, but yeah, I've, I've been lucky. But it was hard. I went from having an assistant to being one. I tell a lot of young people in terms of, you know, obstacles that figuring out what you want to do is a process of trial and elimination. Just trying things and then figuring out what you don't want to do. And I think, and having no ego around it, ex- right? Oh, yeah. I walked people's dogs. <laughs> I picked up their prescriptions. There's no ego about working in the mailroom at William Morris. I was in the deep snow delivering scripts because back then there was no, you know, there was no attachment attached to email. So, right. I ha- yeah, I think that's a big learning lesson. And I, I know so many people talk about millennials and, and the, the sort of attitudes they have. I haven't found that. I still think that you see young people who are hard workers. And I think it has a lot to do with their family and the, the working values. The, the hard, you know, my parents were Midwesterners. They had an incredible work ethic. They worked, both worked really hard. And I learned that early on, and and I didn't have an ego. Um, I waited tables throughout high school and college and bartended in the summer and did whatever it took, and I feel like I learned so much from those jobs that carry through now, just problem-solving and learning to deal with different people. Is there any time during your career before you decided to end what you were doing and Mm -hmm. start something new that you thought it was going to come crashing down? 
No, I've had this weird sense and I've started my, you know, a company too of, of like, it's okay to jump off the cliff and let the parachute, you know, open whenever it's going to open. And I don't know what drove that because I had such sort of, you know, my parents were do well in school, go to college, get a business degree. Don't go get an art or writing degree, like get the most conservative degree you can get. So I didn't have a lot of entrepreneurs around me. And I don't know, I think it was their love and support emotionally and financially that gave me that that um, sense that it was okay. And I always knew I would land on my feet. So when you had hard times at work, when mm-hmm. it felt really hard, which I imagine there must be, have mm-hmm. been sometimes. Yeah. Are, yeah. You, are you remembering? Are <laughs> you like, no? Well, it, it's funny because it was a very personal thing. It wasn't, you know, the things that, that really hit you are not the squabble of a meeting or a budget meeting that didn't go well. I was working on a project um, with DJ AM for MTV Somebody else above me had bought the project and it was my job to develop it. And he was a former addict who we were putting in an environment where he was going to be around addicts again, helping Mm. them. And he ended up dying of suicide or drug overdose during the taping of the show. So that's a moment where you have to say, okay, what are we doing here? Where's the line of television for a hit show? And he helped a lot of people during the process of that show. But that was tough. It was really tough to wake up and say, okay, let's make television again today. And you're dealt with reality TV, right? So yeah. it's, it's people's lives in your hands. Yeah, 100%. We, you know, I did 16 and Pregnant. And the reason we started that show was to reduce teen pregnancy rates in America. And that was a really interesting process in terms of just obstacles in particularly in young women's lives and not having people that believed in them. Because I'm always doing sort of an armchair psychoanalysis when I'm in families' lives, like, I just love studying people because, and I'm always telling stories of real people's lives. Everyone has a story, and we really figured out quickly that was a family drama. But, you know, as women, we're taught to look pretty, be nice, and girls aren't told to say no. You know, we teach our kids when they walk across the street and you see the flashing red a guy don't walk across the street, but we don't talk to them as openly about sexual protection and using a condom and all those things. But the real reason girls I felt in that show were having sex was because they thought they didn't have a future and this was an easy way out. So many of them said this was, you know, I thought he was going to marry me and I wanted to have a baby. And there was some sort of fulfillment in that that I saw of a lot of the girls. So it's hard when you're watching somebody and you know better. And and then I hired Dr. Drew to do the specials because we wanted to get more information out to America because we could tell that there was something really important happening. And the statistics in terms of women who are pregnant teens, they're twice as likely to get pregnant again as a teen. So once I found out all those statistics, to me, it became really important to do those specials and get that information out. But self-esteem and sort of this cultural lack of talking to our daughters about their bodies and Hopefully now with Kavanaugh and everything that's happening and this at the forefront, and you have, you have a daughter, I believe you should be really open and my kids can ask me anything. That is just such a big responsibility, though, right? What you took on. Yeah. I mean, first with the Hills, but they how old were, were all? Were they were in high school when we found them. They were 17 and 18. Right, so you've created <clears throat> these public lives for them and then 16 and pregnant, right? Yeah. So you're... 
to think about what that is to you are creating what the world thinks of these people. And mm -hmm. you have to be true to them, but you also have to entertain the world, particularly mm -hmm. in the 16 and pregnant one, right? Right. It, it, it only works if it's entertaining, if people want to watch. And there had to have been struggles between those, uh, push and pull between those two things in all of your jobs. Yeah, I think that, look, everyone has a story. Everyone has a compelling story. I feel like the shows that I've worked on and that I've chosen to tell those stories, we didn't send out a casting call and say, we're putting eight people in a house. You know, I, they were people that we plucked out of oblivion that didn't want to show up to a real world casting. These were people living their lives. Right. And... The reason that Macy and Amber and all those girls did 16 and Pregnant is they, they wanted their lives to be a lesson to other girls. That don't do what I did because the boy leaves and yeah. you don't finish high school and you don't get to go to prom. And I, we were so happy when the New York Times credited the show with reducing pregnancy rates That's by amazing. 8%. Because when it first started, suddenly because... It was MTV, and my name was attached to it, and they were suddenly on the cover of Us Weekly, and that was not our intention with the show. And there was a lot of um, attention, and we did provide the girls with a lot of support. And believe me, there were a lot of things that happened along the way to all of those kids that we didn't show because of trust and because we edited out the things that, that we knew were, were too private, but we showed the things that really went on. I mean, Amber got arrested because she assaulted the father of her child and she got the baby taken away and that really happened. So why don't I ask you a question? So you've had this amazing show, Your Business, and you really took America for 12 years on this incredible journey through small businesses. How many people did you interview over Oh, my years? God, thousands, thousands. Thousands. Yeah, everyone from Silicon Valley heroes, right, people who founded these unicorns, to right. the person who has a candy shop or the toy store or the laundromat down the street. So right. we, it really ran the gamut. So what did you learn about those people overcoming obstacles in all those interviews? You know, what I became really obsessed with is exactly that, is how do you get through the hard times? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, you hear these stories and people talk about the hard times, but it often comes off as this big humble brag. You know, no one thought I could do it. And then I sold my company for $100 million, right? <laughs> yeah. And there's sort of a story that many founders tell that no one believed in me, then I did this, and then this failed, and then this happened, and the story at the end is always we were a big success. And many times they were, right? But it's hard to get the real story as it's happening because, understandably, people have businesses and they need to have partnerships and customers. But I really wanted to get at, tell me what you do. That moment when you can't make payroll, what did you do? When you went home, what did you do? When you woke up the next morning, how did you get to work? How did you smile at work? And so there are all these great stories. This guy, Dan Sugar, who had this soap company in California, and one day he had this booming business. Overnight, I think he lost something like 50 or 70% of his revenue because his broker went to a Chinese competitor who could sell everything at half the price. Oh, my God. Um, and so think about that, right? You have this whole business, you're supporting your family, and then nothing. 
And what he told me, and this was one of the first stories we did, and I heard it over and over, is basically he went home and he cried and he called his wife and said, what am I going to do? And felt complete despair. And then two days later, he was like, okay, this is what it is. And so he had to fire much of his staff, who he eventually rehired, Mm. rethought what the business is going to be, and then went out and started knocking on people's doors. It's back to that never give up It's you just attitude. Yeah, like you can't hide under the covers. Mm-hmm. And John Foley, who's the founder of Peloton, he was amazing because he was really honest. Here's a guy who, by all accounts from the public, is so insanely successful, right? He mm-hmm. developed this new fitness bike and workout and, and just an industry, basically, right, from nothing, And everyone's congratulating him, and everyone thinks he's doing so well, and he could not get money to run his company. And so he would have these date nights with his wife where he said, okay, this might all fall apart, and we're going to have to go move into your mom's house, and we're going to have to take our kids out of school and change up our whole life. And that's incredibly scary for your family. It's scary for your ego. It's And here's a guy who came from very humble means, And to hear him talk about it, how hard it was. I remember starting my own production company, you know, those feelings of almost not making payroll and worrying, you know, because of the cash flow of production and um, how scary it was. So how'd you get through it? I had a partner. We would just, you know, look at each other and be like, we're going to do this, we're going to do this. And he was, Tony DeSanto was my partner at the time, and he he was great. He was that, it's going to be okay. We were yin and yang that way. So one of us was always freaking out when the other one was calm. Isn't that weird? I hear this about partners mm-hmm. all the time, and my brother and I are the same way. We've worked together for 12 years, but truly, whenever I feel nervous about something, he's completely optimistic, and whenever he's wondering about something, I feel like everything's going to be great, and right. it's weird how it happens like that. Well, it's like any relationship. I mean, my husband and I are the same the same way. I'll be freaking out about something, and he'll be calm, and, and two minutes later, it'll be the reverse. I feel like that's where good relationships, sort of the taffy is, the stretch. <laughs> yeah, but it's funny how it just happens. It's not yeah. like I'm putting on a good face for him or he's putting on a good face for me. Yeah. He, In those moments, he really feels optimistic. Well, the worst is when you're both freaking yeah. out. <laughs> and I and definitely you know. had those moments. I definitely had those moments both in my marriage and in my work husband, Tony DeSanto. We definitely looked at each other a couple times and like, Oh, no. Um, you know, my friend Courtney Nichols Gould started this company called Smarty Pants. Um, she's based in Los Angeles. It's a vitamin company, and it's been incredibly successful. But I remember her saying to me, you have to go into these things knowing that they're going to be hard. And it seems so obvious, but it really resonated with me that if you start a company or start a relationship or whatever it is, knowing that it's going to be hard, then when it's hard, it doesn't throw you off your game so much. Right. You more just think, oh, okay, I was waiting for this to come. Now it's here. Right. Well, that's the importance of the work you've done because you've really given a voice to it is going to be hard. And I think people, there's too much social media or headlines in the news that, yeah, like you said, this person just created this company and overnight they're a billionaire. That doesn't happen. It's emotionally hard. It's hard on your family. It's hard on your friendships. It is good, though. And I think that this generation of kids, and I talk to my kids about being okay with the bad days, and you can't 
overcome obstacles or get around obstacles without the ability to climb walls and and have that resilience and be okay with the bad days too. I used to always get, and I'm sure you did too, as a woman who worked, how do you balance it all? Mm -hmm. Which is a legitimate question and a good one. But I always used to think in response, how lucky am I that someone's asking me this? Right. Right? Because most people in this world don't get to choose how am I balancing. You're just trying to make enough money to feed your kids. Right. And so I feel like, thinking about obstacles, if you can just reframe everything. It's not easy always, right? And we all live in our own little world. And so the hard things for you are hard, regardless of whether they're privileged or not. But if you can just keep that frame of mind of like... Gratitude. Yeah, look how lucky I am to have A, B, C, and D. Really important skill. Yeah. If I'm not grateful for that, then what's the point of having it, right? Right. Other people would kill to be in X position. And so... Well, it's all the mindset. It's all mindfulness. And I think you have to have that gratitude because just looking back at what I've been able to accomplish, the yeah, I got over obstacles, but I, I'm lucky. I'm so lucky. And you're working with someone now, Gretchen Carlson, who really overcame obstacles. Yeah, yes, yes. Gretchen, such a hero that she was a whistleblower on Roger Ailes and now really was at the forefront of the Me Too But this special focuses on fast food workers, firefighters, the women on the front lines who are facing much bigger obstacles than even Gretchen faced at her workplace where they're being sexually harassed. There's no formalized training for these workers who are there alone late at night, you know, working behind the counter and there's no one there to supervise. And then when they bring it to their superiors, there's no one listening and there's no formalized system to help them. And you were hands-on involved with this, right? Yeah, I was consulting producer on it, so. This is the kind of thing that you wouldn't have probably been able to yes, do in yes, the same yes, kind of way. Exactly. And yeah. it feels right in with your mission, what you care about, right? Now you're getting to bring a voice to this whole new set of people. A hundred percent. I mean, even starting out with The Hills, you know, when I was at MTV, I took the channel from sort of Jackass and Osbournes to The Hills and 16 and Pregnant flipped it really female. And I just like to tell stories of young women. And that was the wonderful thing about Lifetime is getting involved in Broad Focus, which was our initiative to hire more women behind the camera getting our rates to 100% showrunners were women and in our launch last year, which really remarkable numbers, but to be able to use television as a, a powerful voice to shed light and shine a light on some of these stories, these women's stories deserve to be told, is, um, is really important to me. It was so fun talking to you. So fun talking to you too, JJ. And I wish you the best in your your next chapter. Thank I you. Know it's and be you great. too. Yes. Very exciting. Thank you. Thank you.